This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Manchester City lose a football match. It doesn't happen often, so congratulations to Newcastle for knocking them out of the Carabao Cup and making the competition a little more interesting. We'll look back at the third round highlights while previewing the Premier League weekend. Shobozlai, an excellent name for commentators to say with a big crescendo as they rocket one into the net, scores a banger for Liverpool, they go to Spurs. Is Amrabat the answer for Manchester United? He stars as they beat Crystal Palace at Old Trafford. Can he do the same when United play Crystal Palace at Old Trafford this weekend? Chelsea score a goal, are Everton now good? since they beat Villa. Luton lose to Exeter and Ipswich come back from two goals down to beat Wolves. Also today, Susie Rack joins us ahead of the WSL. We'll discuss the FIFA agents exam. Guess which of the panel passed it this week. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Barry Glendenning, are you now a licensed FIFA super agent? No, I'm not. I wish I was. Uh, Will Unwin, are you now a licensed FIFA super agent? Unlicensed FIFA agent, unlicensed surgeon, but available for all work. <laughs> Good stuff. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Nick. Jonathan Faduba, well done. You've passed a big exam. We'll talk about it in a bit. Congratulations. Thank you, Max. Good morning. Are you now, you're, you're now the next uh, George Mendes, Mina Raiola. Who are you going to sort of base your game on? Eric Hall, we want monster, monster. Yeah, I think I'll go for Rich Paul. I'll go for the American model. I'll go, I'll go for Rich Paul, the American agent who's married to Adele or engaged to Adele. I'll go with him. Let's start then at St. James's Park. Uh, Newcastle beat Manchester City. Um, I mean, we have to be, I mean, will aside, happy when anyone beats Manchester City, don't we, Baz? I mean, it makes the competition more interesting. I suppose it does. They don't lose very often. Um, this is obviously the the Petro Derby of the sports washing derby, whatever you want to call it. Pep didn't seem that bothered about losing, I have to say. And he, it's a competition he normally takes seriously. And uh, I believe he was more concerned about the fact that man, nobody had booked a flight back to Manchester for his team. And they had to endure three whole hours on a luxury coach uh, for the trip back. And that's yeah. really not on when you've got a, a game against Wolves at the weekend. Newcastle were probably worth their win. The Manchester City were much better than them in the first half. Missed quite a few chances. Oscar Bob, um, who we learnt all about recently, he he set up Julian Alvarez for a couple of chances, but he he couldn't score. And then um, Eddie Howe brought on Bruno Guimaraes and Anthony Gordon for the second half. I mean, the both both teams fielded understrength teams insofar as Manchester City are ever able to field an understrength team uh, and they kind of turned the game around and uh, Joe Linton you know his diagonal run through the penalty area pulled the ball across the face of goal for Alexander Isaac and he scored the winner and uh, yeah I, I would have I don't think Manchester City can have too many complaints they, they weren't able their second half performance dipped and, and Newcastle raised their game. I think, um, Jonathan, since we sort of said a week and a half ago, you know, that game against Brentford was must win. They've had quite a good time, haven't they? Um, gone to San Siro, got a point, perhaps fortunately. Smashed Sheffield United, now beaten Manchester City. So I, so I, I guess 
the way their season's gone after their first game, we thought, oh, they're going to absolutely steamroll this. Then we thought, actually, maybe they're rubbish. And now, actually, they're probably quite good. Yeah, they're back to being quite good again. I think that, obviously, they're, they're sort of built on this solid defence, aren't they, really? That's the, the key pillar of like what Eddie Howe's trying to do, they, they, which they which crumbled a little bit in the games against Liverpool and the defeats they had. And that was the part that was wobbling. Um, now they're not hugely sort of goal-getting, even though they do have some good players up front, like Isak, who scored the winner. But yeah, I mean, even in the post-match, uh, Eddie Howe was sort of praising players like Paul Dummett and Tino Livermento, obviously, who made made his first start for for Newcastle and played quite well actually. So it's very much a, a kind of a, a team built on defence. I mean, even the game in the Champions League, the the Milan game was sort of conservative display. I would say. I think for City, like it's a bit like what Barry just said. They didn't. It was almost like a feeling like they weren't. They were more bothered about how they're going to get home from this game. I mean, it was. I think it's like a three hour three hour coach. So it was, it's not the worst punishment in the world to get back from a football match. You can't, you can't if you're playing, beat the rush, can you? Like if you're actually on the pitch, you can't go at 85. Come on, shall we? Shall, shall we beat the traffic? Will, were you bothered? Were you bothered, Will? I don't want to indicate Guardiola's view on the, on the competition, but City needed a goal and left Erling Haaland on the bench. So I, may, I suspect he wasn't too concerned about going out. Um, I, no. I think once you've won the League Cup so many times, it, it really is the fourth tournament of the season for City. I suspect they'll be more bothered about the Club World Cup coming up. Um, so no, I wasn't wasn't bothered at all. Had a nice night in. Tried to make it old fashioned. It was all right. Um, but yeah, it was, City were good in the first half and probably should have scored. And then Newcastle, once they made the changes, were far better. City couldn't cope. Generally, weren't having the same level of possession they wanted. Livramento was really good up against Grealish. He was coming back for his first start since injury. Um, Kovacic was getting some minutes after injury. Calvin Phillips was making what his fifth start for the club in a year. It wasn't the best City team. Um, they probably should have, you know, been ahead in the first half, as I said. But yeah, I don't think anyone's really going to be too bothered at the end of the day that they're going to have a, mid- a few more midweeks off. I wonder who doesn't book the flight. Like, surely that is just, you know, everyone knows it's happening. Like, just, you know, who, Pep be furious. Who will he sack for forgetting to do that? Um, Simon says, can we please welcome Oscar Bob to the Solly March Serge Aurier Club of players exclusively referred to by their full name? Absolutely. See also, of course, Benicophobi. Um, so Newcastle home to Burnley. I mean, you can't Barry see Burnley get anything from that, can you? They did have their first win of the season, a 4-0 hammering at Salford in the Cup. I think Burnley are improving visibly game on game. And I, a win will come, whether it will be at St. James Park against a slightly resurgent Newcastle. I mean, obviously, they completely battered Sheffield United last week uh, at Bramall Lane. I am cautiously optimistic about Burnley's chances, more so than I am about uh, Luton or who are the other team? Oh, Sheffield United, obviously, who just mentioned. I, I think they're getting there, but it's taking time. And I, I, I wouldn't give them no hope. I, I'd, I'd give them a chance of getting something from this game, possibly a win. Right. Um, uh, meanwhile, City go to Wolves, uh, who got knocked out by Ipswich Town. Um, I think they both made a lot of changes, as happens with most teams in the Carabao Cup. Uh, Wolves were 2-0 up. Ipswich winner was an absolute banger from uh, Jack Taylor. My other observation from this game is Matt Doherty has an excellent mullet. I wonder if he's approaching the age where, obviously, unless, of course, you're in Australia, where every other person has one, you are now too old for a mullet. I don't know if Matt Doherty is reaching that 
that stage. I just wondering, like, I've never had a mullet. I wouldn't want a mullet. I can't understand why anyone else would sport a mullet. I quite enjoy watching Aussie rules football from time to time, and you see some absolutely splendid mm. mullets on show in, in that particular sport. But, uh, yeah, not not really for me, Clive. Mm. It's the grand final, actually, the AFL on Saturday, when I, I presume the Brisbane Widgety Grubs take on the you know the Melbourne Bull Sharks or something, but best of luck uh, to both of those teams. I, I presume... Collingwood are in it. Aren't they? <laughs> they always seem to be in it. I don't know. They're the, they're the menu of, of Aussie rules. All my mates in Melbourne are Collingwood fans. Uh, um, City go to Wolves. Um, uh, as I said, that's pretty straightforward for them, isn't it, Jonathan? Should be, uh, considering they have one of their best players play for them now, uh, Mateus Nunes. So I think that that's a game you'd expect them to win. City are kind of... They are kind of sleepwalking a little bit through the league so far. It's, it's almost been... Like there's been no sort of discernible hangover, but at the same time they're not sort of blowing, blowing on all cylinders. You do wonder if, if for example, anything was to happen to Harland or, or Rodri, who, who didn't play last night as well. You know where it would leave leave them, and who's going to kind of maybe maybe take the take the mantle. But yeah, Wolves have looked entertaining at times. There's cause for optimism in terms of what Gary O'Neill's trying to do it in in certain matches, but they don't seem to be able to string it all together for like 90 minutes, which is is the issue. It's it's almost like they kind of stutter and run out of steam at certain points in games, and then and then regain it. And by that time, they've they've conceded one or two. So you, you would expect them to win, but um, you, you never know. Wolves on their day can be can be pretty good, but yeah, like they've lost their best player, haven't they, to City? So can't can't see really. Mm. Must be so different. I think I said this on the last part for Matas Nunes to suddenly just play in a team where it's just much much easier. You know, just life is just better and easier. Pep was talking about um, Calvin Phillips, Will, uh, and how that he hasn't he hasn't got the best out of him. And he said, you know, Marcelo Bielsa gave Calvin the best of Calvin in his career. I'd love to have done with Calvin what Marcelo has done to him. We have our own specific way to play, and he sometimes struggles in a few things. Do you think he might come in against Wolves and probably more importantly against Arsenal? I suspect Kovacic will play. I don't think Phillips did enough last night against Newcastle. Um, and there'll be a bit more attacking against Wolves and... That's the main thing that City have at the moment with ball control and everything like that. They are dominating games like against Forest until Rodri was sent off. It was like quite hilarious how much possession City have. So I'm slightly suspicious that Phillips will miss out against Wolves and it'll be Kovacic, Lewis maybe in there who played last night. I know he made a mistake for the goal, but I think that's more likely. I don't think Guardiola is going to back him for this game he's not he's not picked him for so long in the league it's more likely that he'll go with a, a different pairing in there um, just one more thing on Newcastle I forgot to mention Anthony Gordon who came on who's looked incredibly good this year and I, this season I just wonder how close he he might be to knocking on the door of, of Gareth's plane I mean we're obviously quite well stocked in those areas but uh, I just hope someone remembers to book the plane <laughs> that's a very good point isn't it that's quite I've done a coach journey from Germany to England and that is quite a long time next to a Welshman who talked about all the fights he'd had in Berlin <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange I was young um, anyway Man United 3 Crystal Palace nil in the Carabao they play each other again this weekend we'll see different teams of course but Amrabat played Jonathan and we, most of us, a lot of us saw him uh, uh, really come to the fore in the World Cup for Morocco. But he did look really solid in there. And that is a part of the pitch where Man United have not been solid. Yeah, definitely. He sort of added a bit of strength to that midfield with 
along with Casemiro. Um, Mason Mount was back as well from from injury. Crystal Palace weren't really, they kind of weren't really the races to be honest. And so I don't feel like it was the biggest test for Amrabat. But United did did a good job. They had a lot more players back defending basically when they needed to. And then you know, unlike the games, for example, the Wolves game where, if anyone remembers the start of the season, where it was kind of a, a gaping donut shaped chasm in midfield, um, they were all, it was a lot more kind of they were more willing to to have players further back to helping out in defence, which was. Nice to see, I suppose, if you're Ten Hag. Some of the fringe players like Garnacho and Martial uh, actually played played pretty well and, and a sort of stake the case for a first-team place. I'm not sure how he's going to really... what he's going to do when everyone's kind of fit and available in, in a Premier League game because you'd think Amrabat will probably start. You'd think Casemiro might start as well and then that would leave Bruno. But then there's players like Mount and others who, who it looks like they may not get in the team. Um, so how he kind of balances that midfield with Amrabat there is going to be interesting to see. But um, in terms of that game itself, the Palace game, it, it was fairly comfortable for United, which is um, which makes a change considering how they played this season so far. The donut chasm is a formation that I would <laughs> it's sort of not the right choice. I, I would suggest I'm no expert. Yes, Barry. No, I, I'm just a bit disappointed with Crystal Palace's approach to this game. I totally get that lots of managers aren't that fussed about the Carabao Cup, and I get that they have to give squad players a run out, but. In the build-up to this game, Roy Hodgson said he was prioritising the league game against United at Old Trafford on Saturday. And I just wonder, well, why? You know, Palace are almost certainly not going to get relegated. They're not going to be challenging for a top four or five place. But if they focused on the Carabao Cup, there's a sporting chance they could get to the semi-final or final and give their fans a, a nice day out one they they don't get too often I think we have to remember that this is elite level professional football and they have to make tough decisions and the League Cup is pretty much regarded as, as the fourth competition for you know the Champions League clubs and the third competition for all those middling Premier League teams and let's be honest you know the final last year was United Newcastle you know, there's no point building up the hopes that you might get to the final because a better team will still get there. So just go out in the third round. You can try and work out a week off, you know. If everyone can have a few days, nip over on the you know Channel Tunnel to France. I, I think Hodgson's 74, 75 now. I think he's quite realistic on the chances of Palace to get to the final. He's just like, no, we can't risk it because then if they do have a massive fall and they're stuck in the quarterfinals or whatever, He's going to bin it off anyway. Bin it off in the third round. Everyone's happy. You know, you didn't have to waste a ticket price at home. No one, went, you know, not many fans went to United and fair play to all those fans that did, knowing that there was a little chance of winning. So, does this does this say more about your ambition, Will, <laughs> just generally? Well, I've got no ambition to ever reach the uh, Champions League of football journalism. Very much <laughs> happy to, you know, here I am on on a fir- the Thursday pod, the Europa League pod. Um, I don't. I don't want the big Champions League midweek ones. Tuesday, Wednesday, no. Thursday, Monday. That's fine by me. All right. Do you see this as a slight? <laughs> Do you see this invite as a slight? I was just trying to make a gag on the day of the week, to be honest. But, you know, <laughs> no, that's fine. This, this is my last that's appearance. Fine. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Yeah, no, we uh, we look. We treat every pod as seriously as it was, except perhaps like the nations league third you know those are tough ones but really the tougher ones to do we have we require the better panelists i would say anyone can do a monday pod right turn up and go yeah that was a good result that was a bad one etc uh in perhaps more serious news anthony's flown back to england from brazil has agreed to meet greater manchester please to answer questions about the serious allegations made against him his ex-partner gabriella cavallin 
made allegations of abuse via Brazilian news outlet UOL, which Anthony denies. Further assault allegations followed uh, from Reza de Freitas and Ingrid Lana. Uh, United have granted Anthony leave with full pay to deal with the allegations. Um, let's talk about Liverpool. They beat Leicester 3-0 last night. They go to Spurs on Saturday. Uh, Leicester and Liverpool both made 10 changes. As far as I could tell, Connor Cody spent the whole game clearing the ball off the line, but Leicester did take the lead. <laughs> Jason McAteer's fifth of the season. He's doing well at Leicester, isn't he? Who knew? Uh, that he was still kicking about. But Liverpool came back pretty comfortably, uh, didn't they? Including a belter from Jobber's lie. Who, Barry, has started the season brilliantly. And it's quite interesting how some players take a bit of time. Look at Anthony Gordon, like really settling in at Newcastle. And Jobber's just sort of arrived and is brilliant. Yeah, and that must be great for clubs to have a signing like that, you know, because you would normally expect someone to take a few months to settle, or in the case of Jack Grealish at City, a year or the case of Calvin Phillips, he hasn't settled at all yet uh, and may have to leave the club before he settles if he wants to play regular football. Sobberslai has just slotted straight in, improved the team, scored that scree- screamer of a goal in off the crossbar, but they're always nice, the, the ones that smash in off the crossbar. It was a good win for Liverpool. They, won, they were very comfortable winners despite going a goal behind. And as you say... Connor Cody seemed to spend most of the game clearing balls off the line. Leicester keeper um, made a a couple of good saves and Liverpool hit the woodwork a few times. Diogo Jota's goal I liked as well. Nice little insouciant swish around the corner, sort of back heel. And it was, yeah, very comfortable. Yasha says, is the pot away that Diogo Jota is one of the best players in FIFA in the world? I mean, I don't know if that's... I don't know if that's he's really good at FIFA or his player has really good stats in FIFA. I don't I don't know the answer to that, but I'm you know that's the only Diogo Jota information I currently have. It was a lovely finish. Do you see them, Jonathan, as we as we search and yearn for someone to contend the title with City? Do you see Liverpool as that team? I think they have a uh, sort of underratedly good squad. Actually, I don't. I feel like they've gone a little bit under the radar, but. Um, Spent a lot of money on the attack over the last sort of maybe two, three transfer windows, just sort of quietly with Diaz, um, Gakpo, obviously Jota's there, Salah stayed. Nunes, obviously, last season they signed for a lot of money. So they have a really good t- attack. They've now sort of just about sorted out the midfield, added more mobility. So Bozlai seems to be the one that everyone's talking about. He's kind of becoming that uh, that sort of fulcrum figure that Liverpool always like to have. You know, I, I hate, I, I, I don't want to say Gerard like, but... You know that that bustling midfielder. The goal was incredible, to be honest. So that that there's a lot more mobility there, and the likes of Graven Birch, Endo. There's got options. Maybe it's just the defence that there's they're still tinkering with a little bit. But in terms of how they're taking approach to the season, like they're the, I think they're, they've got the highest expected goals in the league this season so far. They seem to have this tendency to almost be giving teams a head start with a goal and then coming back from behind, like they did last night, of course. So they've got that resilience, maybe in and the squad as well to change things from the bench. So I think I think things are looking really good. Obviously, this week weekend the test away to Spurs is going to be maybe the first sort of real big test away from home. Um, but they have a good record against Spurs. I think they've they haven't lost in the last twelve games. So yeah, I think things are things are looking pretty rosy in in Klopp's garden at the moment. It's interesting with Sosabalai, and sorry for any pronunciation issues there. I was I was in a roundtable interview with him about a month or so ago, and he was very witty 
in a language, you know, a second language or third language for him, I guess, in a country he's never lived in before, you know, speak, spoke fluently. You, know, you could see how he could, a man that could settle into a new dressing room, despite the fact that he'd spent his previous years within the Red Bull family. And so it was quite striking that, you know, he has that confidence, he has that spirit, that he is very likeable, he's already adapted to England, he, not, not an outsider who speaks the language, lives two doors down from Haaland, so he's got a friend there. Um, so I think that's obviously really helped him and you know, the role that Liverpool have got him playing is, suits every attribute that he has. Funny if you're the person who lives in between Erling Haaland and Dominic Schubberslein. <laughs> if, if you want a cup of sugar, which who, do you, who am I going to go to? It's an interesting choice. Isn't it? You know, it's probably a United fan. Do you? Yeah, possible. That would you, you kick the ball over. Which fence do you want to Fuming. kick the ball over? You know, it's going to come back to power <laughs> from both sides, isn't it? Quick one on Spurs, Barry. I think a lot of people thought they would come unstuck at the weekend. Um, they almost did, but they played pretty well. Uh, I'm, obviously, the Spurs fan in me thinks this is the weekend they'll come unstuck. I mean, is is losing against Liverpool? Would that be terrible? I I don't think so. Maybe at home. No, but you're unbeaten and you've got this momentum and you've got a point at the Emirates. You know, it's all sort of pushing in one direction. Well, look, all Spurs fans will be very much looking forward to this game, whereas in recent times it is one they would have approached with fear and trepidation and dread so that's a start isn't it yeah they will be looking forward to the game they will be optimistic about their team's chances there's no reason why Spurs shouldn't beat Liverpool they probably won't and that wouldn't be the end of the world either but I'm very much looking forward to this game and uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Spurs certainly got a draw and, and they could win it all right that'll do for part one part two begin with Chelsea scoring a goal Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Patrick says, Dear producer Joel and the gang, um, as Joel writes about time I got first billing, uh, he says, I'd like to inform Max that as of approximately the 15th of November 2022, there are 8 billion people in the world rather than the 7 billion he's previously stated. On the plus side, that's another 10 billion pounds in potential revenue. However, it will mean that an additional billion tickets would need to be sold to achieve the elusive sold out live stream of the Brighton show. See you in person at the Chicago live show in 2024. Regards, Patrick. Uh, Yes, we are going on tour. Tickets still available. Uh, Not a billion tickets left in London or Manchester, but some. Astonishingly, Will, the Will Unwin anecdote hasn't instantly sold out the uh, uh, Northern Royal College of Music um, or the Royal Northern College of Music. I forget which it is. Um, But they're selling well, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, So the 13th in London, Ellis, Troy, Philippe, uh, me and Baz. The 15th in Manchester, Will, John Brewer, Nadia Manuha. Uh, yeah, come along. And the live stream, 22nd of November, and you can watch a week on catch-up, all 8 billion of uh, Go to theguardian.com slash fwtour23. I mean, if 8 billion people watched it, I mean, I wonder what happened to the internet, but also it would become like, be like the biggest news story of the day, wouldn't it? I don't know if we'd be able to cope, Barry. Um, uh, let's go to uh, Stamford Bridge. Chelsea played Brighton League Cup. They won 1-0. Nicholas Jackson with the only goal, as many have already said. Uh, he wins Chelsea's goal of the month competition by default. Um, <laughs> but like, a winner is a win, Jonathan. That is some confidence for him and for Nicholas Jackson, who is now suspended for their trip to Fulham. It's a good win for Chelsea, but it's not enough really, is it? Everyone, and I thought, I think on Sky, they had the, the owners sort of um, trundled past like on Sky Sports News after the match and 
really didn't look that satisfied at all. Obviously, there's been talk about them um, going to the dressing room and, and yeah, members of the, the ownership group um, sort of taking some of the players maybe to task themselves personally and the ethics around that is should that be allowed? Um, but yeah, it was, I suppose it's just like relief really is probably the main feeling around the game, especially not losing to Brighton, who I think at least four of their players uh, played for Brighton last season, apparently, uh, I read. They actually got quite lucky. There was quite a few chances for Brighton early on where uh, Robert Sanchez, obviously formerly of Brighton, uh, was one who gave the ball away early um, in, in the box. And um, Brighton had a lot of chances, like really good chances in in, in uh, in the box to kind of take the lead and didn't. They might feel a little bit rueful that they didn't take those chances. But um, yeah, Jackson Jackson was very pleased with that goal. Uh, he scored another one, but again, but it was uh, disallowed. So, Do you think he celebrated for long enough yeah, that guess- it should have been given? <laughs> I wonder. I don't know. No one really seemed to be very happy. That is my conclusion to that match. Pochettino looked extreme, like he like he needed a rest, like maybe a cigarette, just to relax after it. Like no one, no one looked that happy at all. So it's it's. I suppose Chelsea fans will be maybe relieved, but I don't think it's going to sort of uh, ease the problems that they're having. I mean, I think it's they've not won many games at all in the last calendar year, so that's that's a good thing. But yeah, progressing to the next round of the cup is still it's still a nice thing to progress to the next round of the cup for them. It's such a low bar. Now, I, I agree with your sort of... I mean, everyone's sort of confused about what, what they are, Will. Well, I'm not saying Chelsea's recruitment has been a bit all over the place, but they did start with three left-backs on the pitch last night. So they had Chilwell, Cucurella and Matson. I've not seen it before. It's quite a novel approach, oh, trying to fit them into different positions. But they've got three actually very good left-backs. So, you know, maybe they should have looked in all the areas of the pitch if, you know, focused in certain parts and worked it, worked it from there. But instead, just put all your best left-backs in the in any position and it might be able to work. Or just or just play them all at left-back, really shore up that part of the yeah. pitch. And we're all just sort of next to each other in a sort of table football style. Chelsea boss Mauricio Pochettino has been playing the crossbar challenge with Mikhailo Mudrik Barry to try and improve his confidence. I like to play sometimes the crossbar, hit the crossbar from outside the box. He said to me, I don't want to play anymore with you because you always win. And I said, yes, because I have the belief and the balance between belief and quality. I know very well because I'm 50 years old. You're still young and you need to know yourself. Sort of sounds like Yoda is talking to yeah. someone. I'm I'm not sure being repeatedly beaten at the crossbar challenge by a 50 year old is going to do wonders for Mudrick's confidence, but um, it it calls to mind the time Ellis James, uh, our friend, did the crossbar challenge with Mickey Thomas, you know, uh, former Wrexham and Wales legend, and Ellis hit the crossbar with his first effort, and it was on camera. And then hit the crossbar with his second effort as well, which was also on camera. Uh, and I suspect it was the happiest moment of his life. But just going back to, to Chelsea's sort of being overburdened with left backs, I think Ben Chilwell went off in that game with a hamstring injury. So he presumably now joins their list of the lame and halt uh, and won't be there for the game against Fulham. And Nicholas Jackson obviously is suspended as well. He's picked up five yellow cards already. And none of them have been for fouls, like as in tackles. I think four for dissent and one for standing in the way of a free kick. And Maurizio Pochettino is very frustrated with him for, you know, picking up these really cheap yellow cards and getting a suspension already. But I can't see. Would Fulham pose them too many problems? I mean, this is. I think they would. I think Fulham are good and better than I certainly. No, I think I put them 10th, but then I was. Worried why after Mitrovic was going, but now Paulinho stayed. 
I think it's a massive game for their fans, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, it's it, it's a it's kind of a meh derby insofar as they're neighbours and supposedly bitter rivals, but no one seems to really care. I'm, I'm not sure even the fans of both sides are that bothered with, about each other. But yeah, I I would expect Chelsea to win this, but maybe you were right. Uh, remiss of us to mention Ellis James kicking balls on camera and not mention him hammering a ball into the groin of a small boy I... <laughs> uh, definitely worth checking out Brighton go to Villa at the weekend Villa lost to Everton in the Carabao Cup is Villa Brighton Jonathan is that what the battle for eighth place seventh sixth what is this game it's intriguing I'm, I'm fascinated to, to watch it it's the battle for the conference league uh, slot I think to be fair to them both of them are quite entertaining to watch I mean even if we look at the Chelsea Brighton game Brighton dominated the possession dominated the shots as well so it wasn't as if Brighton were sort of. It was a terrible performance for them, really, and it, it shows the standards that it shows it shows the standards that are at Brighton these days. How how good it, how good they are, and they could maybe feel a little bit disappointed to not beat Chelsea away or not get some, you know, not qualify, which shows how far they've come. Um, and for Villa, I quite like Villa this season. I, I quite like what uh, I think. I think they're quite entertaining. DRB is a really good signing, in my in my opinion, um, and I quite like what Emery's trying to do there. Uh, Ollie Watkins is sort of starting to maybe hit, 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 hit a little bit of form. I think for Brighton, having Europe is is maybe a little bit worrying for them in the sense of that they've been a bit hit and miss this season results wise. Like they're playing quite well, but they're kind of that final bit's a, bit, a little bit lacking. And I think Deserby mentioned that after the Chelsea game that kind of they're, they're making chances but not really taking them. And so, so I'm not sure. I might actually think Villa have the edge in this game and might might maybe maybe fancy uh, themselves to win. But um, no, I, I, I quite like both teams, to be fair. So even though it might be an eighth place kind of playoff, um, I think it'll be a good game. David, is our Everton now good? If we use the Aston Villa equation, no, the theory is over. It lasted. It was good while it lasted. Um, but James Garner, another for Dominic Calvert-Lewin, some hilarious Villa defending in this game. But, but Everton-Luton will, I mean, it feels enormous, doesn't it? Luton lost to Exeter. They made 10 changes. Uh, Exeter have started the season brilliantly, by the way. Tom Carroll plays for them, who I think early in my pod career described as the next Javi Alonso. But this feels big. I mean, I I can really envisage a poisonous Goodison after a 1-0 scrappy Luton win. I think Everton, obviously we see these occasions quite a few times, you know, when they beat Brighton away last season, which effectively kept them up, that they do have it in them to have good performances and beat let's be honest, better teams on their day. But very rarely followed it up. It's not their style. But now they actually have two strikers that potentially could score goals, which is a very strange situation. Obviously, Calvert-Lewin's had problems with injuries last season. The backup was Neil Mope, who doesn't score goals. So there's some positivity, you know, whether it's well-founded or not around Everton, that they're being sold, which always helps when you get rid of an owner that you don't like. No one looks too far into the future of what the next owners might be like. So, you know, we'll leave them to it. So there'll be a positive attitude, two wins in two, players playing well in a formation that they're getting used to. The defence is a lot better. Bramthwaite's come in this season and he's he's been an upgrade next to Tarkowski and he's really improved after being at PSV for a season. So there's, there's reasons to be positive. You know, last last season Everton's squad was just so thin, and the formations were quite odd when they didn't have a striker available to try and score goals. So now they do have two potential options. They're going to be better. They're going to be a bit more diverse. They're going to be able to 
change things in a positive way, which is not not something they could do very often in recent times. And you know, Daesh is always going to get the best out of a defence, you know, and that's what it's built on. And now that defence looks a bit more solid, then yeah, they're going to do well. And uh, Luton, I mean, I, I think I said before they've set them they've set themselves up in the market to the aim that if they do go down and they probably will that they'll come back stronger next season and that's their plan and you know they've looked decent and they've got some good players but really Everton need to win this game and if they don't as you say all that, all that positivity goes quite quickly just to sign the sound the Sergio Ramos at PSG Claxon I'm aware he's not there anymore but Tim Krul is at Luton who knew I didn't did I know that Oh, and I'm not sure I knew. I think I might have known it. But I don't want to claim it with any confidence, uh, I'll be honest. Um, uh, Forrest by Brentford. Will, you're going to this game. You've promised us a hot take on both clubs. Yeah, you settle in for the next half an hour, lads. Okay, could you could you keep it to one minute? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Forrest, a lot better than last season. Made some good signings. Arguably, probably one or two too many still. But definitely better away from home. Last season, they were awful. You know, I was at the City game at the weekend and... They're very defensive, but you know anyone's gonna anyone going to City is probably gonna have them ripped apart if they don't play like that. At home, always been very good. The Cooper actually seems pretty close to having a first choice starting eleven in his mind with Owen E and Gibbs White behind. He's just settling on a bat four. Sangari's not had the best of starts after his big move, but obviously I think he'll he'll settle and get better. Um Brentford their defence last weekend was appalling. I mean, really bad. Nathan Collins and uh, Pinnock didn't really know if they were coming or going, so hopefully they'll have been... How dare you besmirch Ethan Pinnock on this podcast? Wow, that's very brave. Yes, sorry, Nathan Collins was terrible. Ethan Pinnock just couldn't <laughs> couldn't save him. Um, so hopefully hopefully they'll have Ben me back um, to help shore up that defence. Uh, and yeah, I look forward to seeing everyone there. Come say hello. Brentford lost to Arsenal. Uh, Aaron Ramsdale played, made some good saves. Mikel Arteta did some good sort of evading the question about him and David Raya at the end. Um, Arsenal go to Bournemouth, uh, who beat Stoke in the Cup. Uh, Sheffield United go to West Ham. And it'll be interesting, Jonathan, to see Sheffield United's reaction when West Ham beat Lincoln in the Cup, by the way. But it can't be as bad as last week. Could be quite a good team talk for Paul Higginbottom. It can't be as bad, but the worry for them will be that uh, possibly one of the best teams at set pieces in the league is West Ham and quite a few of their goals conceded against Newcastle the, of those eight goals were set pieces or from sort of those cross crosses from Trippier. So uh, Ward-Prowse deliveries will maybe be given Apple Hacking on some sleep, sleepless nights. They have to pick up at some point, surely. Uh, I didn't realise, I didn't think they would do that badly against Newcastle, to be honest. I, I thought they might even get something from the game, just in terms of like Bramwell Lane, thought they'd be up for it. But the the, the lack of quality was was quite worrying really. And um West Ham has sort of <clears throat> they they they've signed quite sensibly. I think I think Kudus has been a good sign and War Price, as I just mentioned, like with his delivery, set piece delivery is you know something that David Moyes loves. So I would worry for Sheffield United to be honest in this game. I think I think they they're not going to lose by eight, but I think they could lose by quite a few. All right. Uh, Neil says, do we need uh, a safe and well check on Don Goodman and Neil Lennon as they look like a pair of hostages being forced to read a statement at gunpoint while it was sold as the next round of the League Cup draw? I hope they're both okay and not suffering for their career choices. Uh, The draw is 
Mansfield, Port Vale, Ipswich, Fulham, Manchester United, Newcastle, repeat of last year's final, Bournemouth, Liverpool, Chelsea, Blackburn, West Ham, Arsenal, Everton, Burnley and Exeter v Middlesbrough. It's a long old trip uh, for Borough, isn't it? Uh, Charlie says, no questions, just big congratulations to Jonathan on the licence and scholarship. Uh, yeah, um, uh, life updates, you tweeted. Happy to have passed the FIFA agent exam to become fully licensed under the new regulations. Delighted to have been awarded a full scholarship at the University of Liverpool to do a football industries MBA. Um, my journey in football continues. I've just got to get a feeling you're going to get too big for this pod at some point, Jonathan. Yeah, I feel like I should have probably tweeted that after the show, maybe, instead of before, <laughs> to avoid, avoid questions. But um, yeah, thank, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate it. So what is the exa- what's the exam like? Keeping it brief, basically, FIFA have introduced regulations now if you want to work with players or, or clubs within the international dimension. So if you want to work internationally, essentially. So everybody who wants to be involved in that side of the game has to take an exam now. They're trying to sort of regulate the... The industry, which I think is good, I think there needs to be some sort of barriers to entry because at the moment, Barry, you could wake up tomorrow morning and just decide, you know, you want to want to be an agent essentially and, and pay your money to, to the FA and off you go. And I've met many a person who's sort of like a part-time plumber, but also, you know, has a couple of players on their books or whatever and is kind of doing both. So I do agree that it, it does need a sense of regulation. There's also the side where parents, a lot of parents have started to sort of represent their their family members, which... I think in 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 kind of in theory could work, but in practice it rarely works. I think, and so the, the FIFA basically trying to regulate it. But I think the problem is that FIFA have created a bit of a mess uh, in terms of the exam, how it's held. There was a lot of complaints in Birmingham. I think I think t- well, ten thousand people registered for the exam worldwide, and about a thousand of them had to cram into Birmingham to take the exam. Um, the Wi-Fi crashed. The exam like was a chaos. So there's issues in that sense of it, and there's also issues in the sense that. Um, a lot of the bigger agencies, uh, Stella, Base, the ones who represent the, the the best players in the world, essentially, they're challenging FIFA's rules and saying that there shouldn't be any regulations. And um, FIFA are trying to cap the amount of salary as well that play, uh, the commissions that uh, agents can make. So there's a big type battle basically going on behind the scenes. Um, essentially, long story short. So the exam was pretty difficult. Some of the questions I had were nothing to do at all with working with players or working with clubs at all. I had a question about international friendlies. How many? Games do you get suspended for if you were to be sent off in an international friendly? Does it carry through? So the questions are really random. Yeah, I'm happy to have passed and hopefully I don't have to do it again. But at the moment, um, the law hasn't been enforced in Germany. It's been deemed like not legal, basically, in terms of the caps. So, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on. But um, the long story short of it is, you know, a lot of people be thinking, well, who cares? Like agents, you know, everyone hates agents. But there's a lot of people who don't work with, like, say, a, a Jack Grealish or a, or, a, or a Gareth Bale or whoever who um, are earning a living out, trying to earn a living out of it and kind of having their commissions capped or they're being restricted from the ability to work with players. I, like, I don't mind the barrier to, to entry in that sense of having to pass an exam. That, that's fine. But I think in terms of the way FIFA have gone about it, because essentially in four days' time, if you're not licensed, you can't, you have to retire. So you're not allowed to work with any, any players or any clubs from October the 1st. What's your ambition? Uh, for me, I took the exam mainly because I'd like to move into the player side. I mean, I, I do work players on a semi-pro level, so it's kind of like right, I, okay. I have to take the exam. Essentially, you can't you can't approach anybody after October the first if you don't. So, for me to continue doing that, I would have to take the exam. Longer term ambitions, very deep question for a, a Thursday morning podcast. I, I'll have to think about it, but yeah, I'm doing the masters just to kind of like 
broaden my knowledge, I suppose, and, and, and see where it goes from there. So, yeah, I'm sorry to pry. It, it's sort of interesting, so more interesting than the, the Carabao Cup third round, I imagine. Like, so so <laughs> what, you could see yourself going into sort of football administration or, you know, working for a club or becoming a, you know, having an agency. All those things could be open for you. Yeah, potentially. Um, the Masters is kind of doing football business, so the, the business side of the game, um, which I, I'm quite interested in and would like to delve deeper into and, and learn more about. So I feel like it's probably going to be a year where I learn a lot more about what I want to do and really what direction I want to go in. And of course, like the network and so that side of it is quite important. Um, and like I said, the exam, you know, you can't you can't operate anymore from October the 1st if you don't take it. So essentially, a lot of people are going to be out of a job in about four days time if they fail the exam. Um, I know there's legal challenges to it, but in principle, you're not allowed to operate. So um, I did that just to be able to continue um, the work I do in kind of like the semi-pro game and helping players transition to the pro game. So, uh, yeah, I guess from here, we'll see what happens. But uh, for now, I'm not going anywhere, I don't think, yet. I think Max is asking so many questions about this because he's quite excited to have someone on the pod that has ambitions still. (laughs) (laughs) Really just drilling down into what it must be like. Might keep us on our toes. Yeah, Baz is made over to keep yeah. a, a dog alive for a, for a couple of days, and I just you know, <laughs> you know, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. It'd be nice to have us, you know, not just ebb away slowly to death. Here we are. We're all we're all basically we're now living vicariously through you, Jonathan. Like, really interesting. Um, right, that'll do for uh, part two. Susie Rack joins us for part three. We'll talk about England losing to the Netherlands in the Nations League in the start of the WSL. Hello, I'm Grace Ben. I'm back and I've been busy. Comfort Eating, our award-winning podcast, is out now. With an exciting lineup, including Shirley Ballas, Bridget Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. The Football Weekly book is out today. You can get 15% off if you go to the Guardian Bookshop. The link is in the description. It is also this. Commit this to memory and buy a book immediately. Guardianbookshop.com slash football hyphen weekly hyphen book. Available also from Waterstones and Amazon too. Producer Joel had a look at the customers also bought section on Amazon. Some highlights. A professional garlic press. Uh, Mr. Muscle Drain Foamer and some Kerala Chinese Salt and Chili Pepper Seasoning Times 2 Bundle. So there you go. Anyway, we are dangerously close to being a bestseller, which is a real shock to all of us. So, like, please buy it, even if you don't want to read it. You get a lot of podcasts for nothing, and um, we have to sell quite a few to knock Richard Osman off top spot. He's a disappointingly successful, lovely man. But to be a bestseller, that could that, you'd get a you get a blue plaque in Burberry, wouldn't you? I was stunned to hear we're perilously close to becoming bestsellers. But, uh, yeah, please buy it. <laughs> and, you know, the main reason is people don't buy books anymore, so you don't have to sell that many to become no. a bestseller, <laughs> if we're being truly honest. Uh, Susie Rack joins us, Guardian Women's Football Correspondent, um, uh, to talk about the Nations League and the WSL. How are you, Susie? Good. Tired, but good. Yeah, it's not like you've had a lot of time. I was just when England were playing on in midweek, I was like, "What on earth are they doing that for?" It's just been a World Cup final. I was interviewing three players uh, yesterday, straight after getting back from um, Utrecht, and I, I calculated that they had had 
18 days off before they had had to start football again from their last World Cup match to their first uh, first match. It was on Arsenal players, so Champions League qualification. And, like, like, we were just talking about how, like, I'm not even ready for football to start, let alone them for them to play it. Like, it's, yeah, mad, absolutely mad. And the Nations League is an, it's stupid timing. Yeah, because actually, there's you know, there are real fears about, like sustained injuries and, and ACL specifically in the women's game. And like, if you don't take any notice of that and people keep playing football, presumably there will be no players. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like this, obviously Champions League qualification being so soon, it, like after the World Cup is ridiculous. But then also this Nations League window, uh, which is coming three days before the start of the league, is just mad because it's it's the first time we've had a women's nations league they're the first fixtures and it's meant that you've got players being dragged back into camp after being with their clubs for a few days uh to play serious competitive fixtures where there are things at stake because olympic qualification for the women is at stake in the um in the nations league as well as like european cup uh seedings so they're thrown straight into it into competitive matches where previously these were like somewhat meaningless friendlies that they could sort of ease back in with and you know they've rest a lot of players and things like that and they're not able to do that so yeah it's it's just the calendar's screwed all the players are knackered Millie Bright after their game was like the problem is is there's no end in sight basically and if there was some kind of like end in sight that there'd been some kind of agreement on what the schedule looks like moving forward it'd be a little bit easier to handle but for the now they've just got to get on and keep playing and just keep playing and keep playing and yeah it's olympics next year it's the euros the year after they're gonna have five major tournaments in summers back to back before there's a summer off and then a world cup the following year and there's just yeah the the consideration for what their bodies can physically take, particularly when they're, you know, we're we're not talking about men's professional footballers who have gone from like for age five being groomed for professional football. These are, you know, they've gone professional recently, so mm. they're, they're they're not ready for it. Are you regretting your life choices, Susie? <laughs> I, I, I'm always <laughs> regretting my life choices. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, while we're on ridiculous things, you mentioned Olympic qualification, and this is the thing that totally blew my mind: is that Team GB's Olympic qualification is dependent on how well England do in the Nations League. It has nothing to do with how the rest of the home nations do. And Scotland are in the same group as England in the Nations League. So if Scottish players who are good enough to get in the Team GB squad want to get in the Olympics, they're better off not playing well against England. Yeah, it's insane, right? (laughs) um, The idea that they've not put them, like, you know, said that they can't play against each other and put them in, like, different groups as like the minimum is just yeah slightly ludicrous because I mean kind of yeah hilariously obviously there's going to be players on that Scotland team that would love there to be no team GB at the Olympics and probably disagree with its existence who will go all out to stop it from happening and then others who have been part of it and really enjoy it and really like embrace their Olympic moment and it's their chance to get close to a medal than perhaps they would otherwise um who are going to be you know kind of almost gutted that they're they're in control of denying it so it's 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 mad but yeah I mean yeah England are the nominated nation I think that's like how it works that like one only one team can be nominated to be able to qualify for it but it used to be done on the basis of um where teams finished uh in the World Cup so like the top two European nations in the World Cup would be the ones that go through to to play in the Olympics but they've switched it into 
Nations League and now you've got to be like in the top two finalists of or in the final of the Nations League um, or if France get there as hosts of the Olympics then in the top three so yeah it, it's it, the whole thing is a little bit mad I think I mean schedule wise it's time that they you know for me switch to uh, it being like the men's and being an under 23 tournament at the Olympics so you take out one of those like you know, one of those major tournaments for the senior women's players in these sort of like back-to-back-to-back-to-back runs that they've got of like intense summers. But that's a very European-centric view because for the US and Australia and teams like that, it's, and Canada, the Olympics fills a hole. They don't have, I mean, they've obviously got, they've got their um, Euros equivalents and stuff, but it's not the same level of competition. So like that for them, that is a big like, um, competitive tournament for them outside the World Cup, so it's that's the hard part. Is it's yeah a Eurocentric view, but it is a little bit insane that it's not gone that way yet. WSL starts this weekend. You must be delighted. Football is back, Susie. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm buzzing. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I said to the players, it's like after a major tournament and then a little bit of time off. It's so hard to get going again. And yeah, not really ready for football to restart, but it is actually it is actually quite an exciting start to the season. Like the uh, the first game um, that kicks off on Sunday, Aston Villa Man United, I think is going to be brilliant. Um, Aston Villa have done so much in the transfer window. Um, they had such a great season last year. Man United have had such a high turnover after finishing second. Like it it, it could be a real upset. Villa beat Man City on the opening day of the season last last year 4-3 um real thrilling match and on our pod we 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 sort of a few of us sort of predicted that Villa could be the ones to upset the apple cart at the top a little bit and break into Champions League qualifying and stuff which is kind of fun and yeah Man United are struggling despite all their many signings so yeah it's gonna yeah it's gonna be really really good opening weekend with games at the Emirates, games at Stamford Bridge and stuff as well. Yeah, Arsenal-Liverpool, Chelsea-Spurs. Um, presumably Chelsea go into this season as, as favourites? I mean, I'm loath to predict Arsenal for anything, but um, I think they've got a really good chance given that they've not got Champions League because they messed up qualifying so badly, which is a disaster in like so many ways. But the last time Arsenal didn't qualify for the Champions League, they won the league. And I think there is quite a big correlation there between you know number of games played towards the end of the season and how well you do in the league and they're going to have a lot of players returning from injury you know all those players that we saw fall out last year are sort of going to be drip fed back in over the course of this season they've made some really 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 strong signings um uh, Amanda Illstead from uh PSG Swedish defender who uh scored I think four goals at the, at the World Cup as a centre-back um Alessia Russo, they've poached from Man United, um, Lea Codina, Barcelona, and Spain World Cup winner, Kyra Cooney-Cross, who's like the starlet of um, the Australia team, 21-year-old midfielder, like having her learn alongside Kim Little is going to be really cool. So that, that like, if anyone can tip Chelsea off their perch, it's probably Arsenal this season, given um, the, you know, the number of games they'll have without Champions League. But it's Chelsea, like we were saying on the women's pod, it's like, yeah, death taxes and Chelsea winning the league is just a thing. Um, So yeah, I think that's likely, regardless of what I think about anyone else. How big a loss will Magda Eriksson and 
Pranilla Harderby for, for Chelsea. I know Pranilla Harderby was injured for most of last season, but they've obviously both gone to Bayern Munich, is it? Yeah, both gone to Munich. And I, I, I would, Magda's more of a loss from a leadership point of view, um, but Millie Bright has really stepped up into that role. Obviously, she's been captain in England. They've got a lot of captains in that side, so maybe it won't be as big a loss in that sense. Pernilla Harder's like just such a she's supreme, supremely talented forward, but they've they've recruited so well to sort of plug those gaps, and they've got Frank Kirby's back in training, having been injured for most of last season. So I think that there will be an impact. But Emma Hayes is so so good at managing the turnover of players. I remember when they look, they you know kind of got rid of people like Karen Carney and Katie Chapman and a few of the centre backs and you know any Aluko players like that as well and. Um, I remember thinking at those points, oh, there's going to be a little bit of a transition season here. And then there never was because Emma's so good at winning while in transition. And she's spoken about wanting to do that. So, you know, Katarina Macario from Leon, like incredible forward. Uh, Mia Fischel, really, really exciting young forward. American, um, has been playing in Mexico, but like one of the ones that everyone's sort of been watching around the world in terms of like replacing Penilla Harder, like, I mean, they're not like for like, but that forward line is is still really, really strong. And then they've brought in Ashley Lawrence from PSG um, defensively. They have Kadisha Buchanan, who they, who didn't have the best season, maiden season last year, but hopefully has come along a bit. So Jess Carter has obviously performed brilliantly for England. They've got Millie Bright as well. So in terms of like centre-back options and forward options available, sort of not necessarily like for like replacements, but that, that sort of, fill the void in other ways I think they're going to be all right um yeah they they look really strong and they just they see like Emma Hayes is just so elite at managing those turnovers a lot of people would have seen the Aston Villa kit story um you know this kit is too sweaty and the sort of first reaction you know from the men's side is this is quite funny um uh, Villa's Male players have reportedly told the club the shirts are retaining sweat, making them uncomfortable. That's a change kits at half time. Um, Jackie Oatley, a uh, friend of the pod, was sort of talking about it from a, a female perspective, saying, you know, she said, you have plenty to think about as, an, as a female athlete, just being the best you can be on the football field without thinking about getting sweaty, your kit clinging to you, both from a performance aspect, as it is with the men, but also from an aesthetic aspect. And as we know, women are different specimens when it comes to our bodies. It can really affect us how we perform if we're constantly thinking about how we look or a top might be clinging to our breasts and also our body shapes. So it's sort of interesting to see that story from a, from the Aston Villa women's perspective. Yeah, definitely. It's a disaster. Um, yeah, I, I don't think any player is going to be particularly happy going out onto the pitch uh, wearing that kit for their opening game of the season, when, particularly when there's so much attention on them as a team. Um, it's the first game of the weekend um, and everyone's expecting it to be really high profile. Um, I would... Like if I was one of them, I would hate to be wearing that kit on that pitch in that moment. Um, and I, I think I read that you know they're very very concerned about it. Um, I'm actually going to ask a, ask a little bit more today about it. But um, yeah, it's <laughs> slightly insane that it's not been a consideration. I mean, for the men obviously, but for the women even more so. Um, for you know all the reasons we know, um, absolutely chaotic. Uh, hopefully, hopefully they can sort out some kind of alternative ahead of the weekend. If I was them, I'd just say playing last year's kit for now. Um, but, you know, sponsorship doesn't work that way. So what am I to say? Uh, just a couple of any other businesses. Sean, um, uh, on the subject of uh, Spanish player, Sid said sounded like a cough. Victor Sikankoff 
Um, and I introduced Limboy Sinus. Uh, he said, I just wanted to add Magnus Headache, Richard Koff, Julian Vicks, Ansu Fatigue, Yossi Benelin, <laughs> and Phil Decongestant, which is terrible, isn't it? The last one, but I, I'll, Yossi Benelin will take. Uh, Paul says, uh, we all know that Football Weekly is the distraction of choice for all things vasectomy related. I can also confirm that you folks are particularly effective when it comes to helping get through two hours of root canal work. Only a matter of time before you're being prescribed by doctors across the land. Great show. Uh, cheers, Paul. Yeah, of course, we'll welcome all. Any operations you have listened to Football Weekly while undergoing, we'll take them all. Football Weekly at theguardian.com. Thanks to David Squires, who drew a picture of Barry as the genie from Aladdin. Uh, it's meant to draw him as Jasmine, but uh, it is a wonderful look of Barry coming out of the Carabao box with a cigarette out of his mouth. like uh, uh, as, and, where, where is that? Uh, I retweeted it. You can have a look at it. All right, okay. Anyway, that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Susie. Cheers, thanks for having me. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Max. Thanks, Will. Cheers, Max. I'm sorry we bothered you on a Thursday. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett. This is The Guardian.